Well, good morning, Inglewood family. What a, a blessed morning it's already been, even as we uh, continue to pray for the unreached people groups and hear testimony from uh, missionaries that uh, have been sent out as part of our Inglewood family. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. As you're turning there, I want to uh, maybe share a brief welcome and hello uh, to all of our guests. If you're a guest and you're here today, uh, we want to say thank you for choosing to worship with us. We pray that you'll be not only blessed in song, uh, but also in fellowship as we extend uh, kindness to you. And we pray that uh, today that God's word would encourage you. Uh, if you are a guest, we want to encourage you maybe the worship guide you received on the way in. If you would just scan the QR code that's right there uh, on the inside, you see it there on your screen as well. That'll actually take you to a place where we can have a record of your attendance and your visit uh, with us. We can follow up with you, encourage you. If you share a prayer request on there as well, uh, you can also uh, give through that um, QR code digitally there through the app. There's uh, physical receptacles around the sanctuary, but you can give through that as well. And there are sermon notes. Uh, if you can't find them on the app today, good news for you. If you scan that QR code, oh, they're good now. Okay, the app is good. The QR is good on the website. You can find some sermon notes there. Uh, it's been updated. Uh, let me also take a brief moment uh, to celebrate our uh, weekend and the special holiday it is for our veterans. And so if you are here today and you have served our country, one of the branches of our armed forces, I ask you to stand so that we can honor you and thank you today as part of our time together. You can see them around the room. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you so much for your service to our country. It's because of your sacrifice and so many others that we have the opportunity to worship uh, today. You know, uh, this morning we're going to continue in our um, series through the book of Titus. And in Titus chapter 3, what we're going to find is God begins to unfold his, his plan, his desire, the responsibility for uh, the church. We've talked about the structure, who we are as a church, what makes a church a church, what the leadership's responsibility is to the church, the members and the role that each of us plays as a vital part of the church. And last week we saw how God wants to grow us by his grace to become more like him as individual members of the church. Well, it stands to reason then in chapter 3, Paul would then begin to transition to say, all right, if this is who we are and this is what God's doing in us, what does God want to do through us? And chapter 3 really does outline for us the responsibility uh, for God's church. I was reminded this week of a story, really in some ways a tragic story, uh, but one that highlights for us some of the challenges we face. Back in March of 1964, many years ago, there was a young lady, you'll see her picture on the screen. Her full name was Catherine Susan Genovese. She was known as Kitty to her friend. She was 28 and on her way home from work, late one night in the early morning hours, she was actually brutally assaulted and murdered in this little area called Kew Gardens, which is just a, a brief part, a little kind of um, quiet area uh, in Queens, New York. Now, the phenomenon that was discovered or resulted from her uh, stabbing has been something that's made a big impact, but it's also something that alerts us to some of the challenges that we face. You see there on the screen, there's a result of, of her uh, suffering and the crime that, um, that she was a victim of. Uh, we actually formed what we now call the Neighborhood Watch Program because there were so many people who, after uh, she died, uh, recognized and affirmed as the police kind of did their investigation uh, that they had heard uh, that, that she was uh, being assaulted. They heard her screams. They heard what was going on. 
And yet out of all the residents, uh, none of them actually contacted uh, the police or authorities or intervened to help. In fact, the New York Times, as you see there reported, 38 of the neighbors in her area heard or witnessed in some form or fashion the crime as it was taking place, and yet none of them did anything. This has actually resulted in uh, two psychologists kind of taking an interest in this case and discovering what else you see listed there on the screen, uh, what's known as the bystander effect. Some people, and in some circles, it's actually known by her name as the Genovese effect. And here's what it says, that the more people that are around when an incident of some kind happens, the less likely they are to be involved. And you may say, well, that sounds kind of backwards. It seems to me that if there were more people around or more people aware, that there would be the chance, the greater chance that someone would intervene. Here's what they did in the, their study. They, they uh, discerned uh, through all this kind of elaborate study uh, that if there was one person uh, present during an incident of some kind that deserved and, and required assistance, that 85% of the time that one person would do something. But when they put another person there to witness and observe some sort of incident, the number actually dropped to 68% of the time somebody would do something. What's even more fascinating is the more people you added. When, in fact, when they got up to five people, the number dropped all the way down to 31% of the time. When five people were present, only 31% of the time would someone step in and do something. And say, what, what, what's the phenomenon? What's the reason? What's the rationale? Here's what they concluded. That when there's more people around, the responsibility to do something is actually diffused. In other words, everyone's looking at everyone else. Why aren't you going to do something? They just kind of expect, well, I don't have to do something because other people will. Somebody will take responsibility for it. Well, sadly, this same bystander effect has kind of become what's commonplace in the church as well. When it comes to the mission of the church, the responsibility that God has entrusted to us to carry out and fulfill the great commission, to make disciples of, of all nations, from the neighborhoods to the nations, right here in our own community and beyond, what happens is people in the church, church members, diffuse responsibility and expect that someone else is sharing the gospel. Someone else is taking the good news to the community. Someone else is doing it. And so I don't have to feel ultimately responsible when it's not happening. It's a tragedy. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an issue in our churches that we have to address. And this is exactly what Paul does in Titus chapter 3 by telling them not only what the responsibility is, but the good news, how to actually take responsibility. What we're going to see in this passage is that Paul kind of outlines a strategy for us. In fact, there's a handful of strategies. He says, if you want to reach your areas, your neighbors, uh, all the way to the nations, if you want to reach people for Christ, I'm going to show you and give you an understanding of how to do that. So if you found your place there in Titus chapter 3, let's read together starting in verse 1 and understand the responsibility and ultimately the plan and the strategy to carry the gospel to the people. Remind them, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to, send, uh, to speed Zenos and the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would give us pause. Remove the, the mental and emotional distractions. Father, that you would arrest our attention and allow us to hear you speak. Father, I pray that you would grip our hearts with the responsibility that you've entrusted, not to just us collectively as a church, but to us as individuals, disciples, followers of Christ, God, that we would take this responsibility, embrace it. God, that we would be faithful witnesses to fulfill the great commission with all those that you put into our path. God, I pray that you would teach us now by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we look at the responsibility that God has entrusted to the church, I want to share with you a few strategies that Paul puts into chapter 3 so that we can understand how are we in fact to fulfill our mission by reaching the lost for Christ. First way we see in this passage is that we can note that we're called to reach the lost first and foremost with a godly lifestyle. We're called to reach the lost with a godly lifestyle. What Paul wants us to understand is there is a responsibility for how we live. That the testimony that we share with our lips must be first exhibited and demonstrated in how we live with our Lives. And what he describes in the first two verses here is this godly lifestyle among a culture that's being overwhelmed with sinful practices, sinful values, sinful uh, kind of uh, habits or, or even ideals. And as we live in this culture that's being swept under this tidal wave of immorality, how are we supposed to stand out? How are we supposed to make a difference? Well, he describes that we're called to reach the lost with a godly lifestyle, and he explains it in a couple ways. First, he tells us that we have a responsibility to live as respectable citizens. We have a responsibility to live as respectable citizens. You know, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're not a member of the community. Yes, we're a member of the faith community, the church, but we're also still and remain members of our community. And what he describes is this responsibility to live as respectable citizens in verse 1. Notice what he says, remind them, something that they should already know, something that they should be ready to do, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority. 
Now, as he's describing it here, he's, he's describing the, the role that government plays. And while government is instituted by God, we recognize that not every government official is necessarily a servant of God or endorsing even God's values. But we have a responsibility as citizens in our community to uh, be model citizens, to obey the rules of, of government, to obey the civil laws that are put in place. The Bible tells us in Romans 13:1 that God has ordained govern, government. He's put it in place so that we uh, might have a culture and a society that lives where our rights and freedoms are protected. Now, we also know that we have a higher responsibility to God, and anytime those two things would conflict, we would join with the apostles in Acts 4 or 5 and maybe look at our government and say, hey, you be the judge whether we should listen to God or man. And yet at the same time, as long as our, our laws and our communities aren't requiring us or asking us, demanding us to violate a, a truth in Scripture or something that God has clearly said, we have the responsibility to follow the leadership that is in place. He describes it there in, in, uh, as he continues in verse 1, to be obedient. This means ultimately compliant. Obedient to God and compliant with our civil responsibility. And to be ready for every good work. To be ready means to be prepared, to be equipped, to be devoted to those things which are virtuous and wholesome, that universally everyone would agree that we live in a, in a way that is a responsible citizen. This involves, uh, requires, maybe includes our involvement in our community. Uh, I'm so thankful for those who serve in civil ways, civil responsibilities, maybe by vocation, in terms of a hospital worker, a policeman, or fireman, uh, those types of things, but also those who serve in other capacities, such as members of the school board, city council, others who serve in these governmental ways. We have a responsibility to recognize that, that as Christians, we are called to be respectable citizens. And one of the first things our community is watching is, how do we interact with the rest of the community? We have this responsibility to live this way as respectable citizens. He goes on to describe uh, that we're to speak evil of no one in verse 2. And this would correspond with what uh, Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. When he said that I urge all men to come together and to pray for those who are in power or leadership responsibilities, specifically of government uh, leaders. And as you pray for them that you would live uh, a peaceable, quiet, godly, dignified life. As Paul describes that to Timothy, he's also describing it to Titus and encouraging us to live this same way, ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. In other words, some of our responsibility as good citizens is to, to not just create a fight or pick a fight with every person we disagree with. Sure, we can have differences of opinion. We can have uh, certainly difference of conviction, but we have a responsibility to live peaceably among our neighbors and in our community. To be gentle, he says, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. You see, we have a responsibility to live as respectable citizens that ultimately will demonstrate that we're not just respectable citizens, we're living as respectable Christians. Respectable Christians. He says there to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, can I just be a little honest and transparent here? That's a tall order. To show perfect courtesy to all people. Man, perfect courtesy. To, to be kind at all times. To, to be willing to defer. To, to extend hospitality. To, to give someone else the, 
the, the right to, to step in line or to, to do these things, to extend perfect courtesy to, to all people. That's a challenge, but that's exactly what we as not just good citizens, but as faithful Christians are called to do. This is actually how Paul commended the Colossians in Colossians chapter 4. In verse 5 and 6, he said, Be wise in how you act or live among outsiders, those who are lost. He says, Take advantage of every opportunity, allowing your, your conversation to be seasoned with grace as with salt, so that you know how to respond to all people. Listen, if we're going to reach the lost in our community, we're going to do it with a godly lifestyle by living as respectable citizens and responsible and respectable Christians as well. The Bible tells us in Romans 12, 16, that as much as it depends on us, we should live at peace with all people. We should be peaceable, gentle, showing courtesy to all people. Friend, in our culture, in our day and age, it has such a cynical and hostile kind of disposition and demeanor. You want to stand out? Live this way. Show courtesy to all people. This, this, is, this will be a rare exception, but that's actually the opportunity for the gospel to stand out for the right reasons and in the right way. We're called to reach the lost with a godly lifestyle. But that's just the first strategy. He goes on to another strategy in verse 3. We're not just called to reach the lost with a godly lifestyle. We're called to reach the lost with genuine compassion. With genuine compassion. Look there in verse 3 what he says. For we ourselves were once. And you just need to pause there. We ourselves were once. Once, when we look at the lost people around us, we have to recognize their condition. And he describes what they're kind of overwhelmed with. We ourselves were once, and he describes them as foolish, disobedient, led astray. He describes them foolish, really, he's describing them as, as ignorant, unaware, maybe the most kind way to describe it in our terminology. Unaware. They're unaware of their lostness. They're, they're fools, they're ignorant, they're blind. And they don't know that they're blind. They don't know that their hearts are deaf, that they cannot hear or understand. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, living in rebellion against God. That doesn't mean that everything they do is bad. But everything they do is stained with sin. And that sin co uh, constitutes what he clarifies here is disobedience. Who are disobedient. Uh, we also know that within our culture, certainly those are, there are those who are uh, living in direct opposition to the values of God and the truth of his word. They're led astray. That would describe kind of they're misled. They're deceived. They're deceived by the enemy. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 3 and 4 that they're, they're blinded by the, the enemy of the world. It says they're foolish. They were slaves to various passions. To be enslaved means that they can't get away from. These things control them, the various passions and the pleasures of the world. We know what the world accentuates is that which is pleasure, but we also know that it's temporary pleasure. It says that they were hated by others and hating one another, living in constant hostility. When we look at the world around us, we must reach them with a genuine compassion by understanding that we can recognize their present spiritual condition. We have to recognize their present spiritual condition. See, when we look at lost people, we can't look at them and expect godly behavior. Why would we expect godly behavior from a godless person? It means we have to look at them with compassion and understand that they can't help themselves because they've yet to be redeemed. It doesn't mean that we're okay with how they live, but we are able to recognize the person behind the, the sin. 
the person behind the offense, the person behind the lifestyle, and that person is lost. They're blind. They're spiritually deaf. They can't really help themselves. We recognize their present spiritual condition, and we best do this when we remember our previous spiritual condition. You notice how it starts in verse 3? For we ourselves once were. We're no better than they are. We've just been rescued. We, we, we would struggle with the same things had we not been rescued. As he describes it there, it, it, it may say, you may feel like, well, I don't think I ever lived in a way that would have been described as, as he mentions it there. Foolish or disobedient or led astray. But that's actually the very condition of our hearts. No matter how extreme our sinful condition was uh, in terms of our behavior, our sinful condition was just as wretched and just as sick and just as lost. You know, a few years ago, um, I got uh, sick one, one, you know, season, winter season, whatever it was. And it had been years since I had had some of the symptoms that I had. And the symptoms were pretty extreme and they, they lasted for a pretty extended period of time. As I was walking through that sickness, there was a moment where, quite honestly, I was sitting on the bathroom floor dealing with those symptoms, struggling through uh, the, how miserable, that miserable feeling. You know what I thought at that moment? Man, I have forgotten just how miserable it is to be sick. I've forgotten how miserable it is to be sick. And the truth is, I think many times when we've been saved for a longer period of time, when we lived, we've lived a life that's, that's kind of trying to and seeking to follow Christ, we forget what it was like to be lost. We forget what it was like to be lost, to be hopeless, to, to, to not believe, to not believe not just in, in God, to believe that life matters or has a purpose. To, to be enslaved to these things, these desires that makes no sense to us as believers, but to them, they're the only kind of hope for any kind of satisfaction. So they believe. They don't understand. They don't know. If we're going to reach the lost, we, we have to reach them with a, a genuine compassion that recognizes their present condition and remembers our previous condition. That they are just in desperate need of the Savior who has rescued us. We have to be burdened by them. Too many times when we look at those who are standing on the other side of a political aisle or a specific issue, those who stand uh, for things that we are, are, are diametrically opposed to, things like you know, pro-life or, or you know, these types of uh, kind of convictions as it relates to our cultural sensibilities, we're, we're, we're prone to see them as, as enemies. And the values that they represent are opposition. But they themselves are individuals that Jesus died for. They themselves are not our enemies. They've been captive by the enemy. What they need is rescue. They need a rescue. Third, we have a strategy. Not only are we called to reach the lost with a godly lifestyle and with genuine compassion, we're called to reach the lost with the gospel message. We're called to reach the lost with a gospel message. You know, uh, St. Francis of Assisi is often attributed to a, a very familiar saying, and it makes sense in, in, in one regard, and, and we would uh, echo kind of the sentiment maybe behind it. It says, um, share the gospel, is what he said, and when necessary, use words. 
There, there's a testament to that. We talked about the, 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 the genuine compassion and the godly lifestyle that God calls us to live with. And it should be that which is a testimony that's attractive, that demonstrates the goodness and the kindness of Jesus. But friends, people can't come to faith in Christ just by acknowledging and recognizing a godly lifestyle. They need the gospel message that explains what that lifestyle is and where that lifestyle comes from and what the hope and the purpose behind it is. And what he begins to describe in verse 4 is that gospel message that has transformed us. We were once this way, but, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. We talked about that salvation last week, and we have to recognize that when we speak of salvation and being saved, it really does uh, have implications that we've been rescued, that we were desperate, that we were lost, that we were without hope. But God, in his kindness, in his love, in his goodness, he saved us. This gospel message tells us uh, maybe how we ought to, to share it and the things that we ought to share about it. And when we share the good news, what we should do is share it as good news. It's good news. That's what the, the term gospel you know, translates, right? It's, it's good news. We oftentimes share it as bad news. There is bad news that, that, that says you are a sinner in need of salvation. But it, ultimately the gospel message is good news, that the Savior has come. And when the kindness and goodness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So when we celebrate our salvation. Let us do it in a way that communicates the gospel that's available to all people. We can rejoice, in fact, in the greatness of our salvation. We can rejoice in the greatness of our salvation. When you look at what happened when we were saved, you see it described there. He mentions here in verse 5, he saved us. He goes on to describe later in verse 5 that it was by washing, the washing away of sin, that sin has been cleansed. He describes it by his renewal, that which is made new. In other words, he saved us by the washing and the making new of our lives. Then in verse 6, it says that he has poured out on us. He's blessed us with the Holy Spirit. His very presence has been poured into our lives to lead us forward. In verse 7, it says that he has justified us. He has declared us righteous. He has given us right standing with God. We have been justified by God and ultimately that we've been adopted by him he says that we have become heirs we now stand to inherit not just the kingdom eternal but the kingdom earthly as he establishes his kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth oh how great a salvation we have that he has saved us that he has washed us that he has renewed us that he has justified us that he has adopted us this is good news, and we can rejoice in the greatness of our salvation. Do you realize we were once this way, but God has now declared us righteous? We were once sinful, depraved, disobedient, all of those things, but now we've been justified. Let's explain this word just briefly, okay? Because too many times when we look at words like justified or justification, we, we assume we know what they mean. To be justified, you can kind of break it down in a, in a kind of a little play on words, that in one sense, it's just if I'd never sinned. God looks at me, and now I've been justified. It's just if I'd never sinned. But you know, it's more than just the forgiveness of sin. You know, so many times we use this, rightly so, as a legal term, that God has, has declared us innocent. 
But understand, it's not just that he said, okay, you don't have to pay for the crimes that you've done. Jesus paid for those crimes for you. It's almost like he said, you're not just innocent. You are now declared a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Yeah. God has credited to your account the righteousness of Christ. To say that you have been justified doesn't mean that you have been declared innocent simply. It means that you have been declared righteous. You've been declared righteous in Jesus. You talk about a flip the script, change it, the world upside down. All of a sudden, look at the greatness of our salvation. So that we, in and of ourselves, aren't any better than them. But now, in Christ, we have all that he is credited to our account. Praise the Lord. We can rejoice in the greatness of our salvation. And we're not identified. Our identity is not determined by our past, by our mistakes, by our decisions. Our identity is determined by who we are in Christ. See how great a salvation God has given us. He saved us. He washed us. He renewed us. He poured out on us his spirit. He has justified us and he has adopted us. We have a great salvation. But we don't just rejoice in the greatness of our salvation. It all points ultimately to the author of our salvation. We can rejoice in the God of our salvation. Think about the terms, the attributes that he gives to God or or attributes to God here in this passage. Look in verse 4. It says, but when the goodness of God, God is so good. He's the, it's the goodness of God. God is good. I know you can laugh at my singing. It's okay. I just, no, I can't sing anymore. But listen, God is so good. He's good. And it doesn't just mean that he's, he's benevolent. It means that he is virtuous. He's beautiful. God is so good. When the goodness of God and his loving kindness, this, this is another word for his, his, his grace, his undeserved goodness, his love and kindness. It's translating uh, what the Old Testament termed the hesed of God, which was mercy and love and grace all woven together. The goodness of God, the mercy, the grace, the kindness of God appeared. He saved us, not because of good works we had done uh, in, in our own righteousness, but according to what? His mercy. It's by his goodness, his love, his mercy. And then he goes on to describe it in verse 7, so that we've been justified by what? That's what we saw last week. His grace. Come on, y'all. His goodness, his kindness, his love, his mercy, his grace. When we celebrate our salvation, we're rejoicing in the greatness of it, but we're rejoicing in the God of it. We're celebrating our God, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. When we communicate the good news to the people around us, We can't just be known as Christians for what we stand against. We have to be known by who we stand for. We stand for a God who is merciful and gracious and kind, loving. We stand for a God who in those things demonstrated them all by sending his son to die for every lost one of us. Every lost one of us. And he's died for you and for me and for every person out there. And when we share that with them, we can help them know that God loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them. And Jesus died for them, was buried and rose again to new life to give them the new life that he promises and offers. And in Christ, they can, in fact, be saved. It's the good news of the gospel message. We have to be ready and equipped to share that good news. Not only are we going to reach the lost with a godly lifestyle and genuine compassion, 
We're going to reach the lost with a, got the gospel message. And also, we can reach the lost with our good works. With our good works. Now, I know sometimes when we think about God's grace and we think about the gospel of salvation, we kind of pit good works against the gospel. But the gospel, the gospel should always lead to good works. This is all throughout Scripture. All throughout Scripture you see this, perhaps even in the greatest uh, grace passage in, in all the Bible, in Ephesians chapter 2, when it describes our previous condition as disobedient, sons of disobedient, children of wrath, dead in our trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he saved us, and by grace you have been saved. And he explains our new position in Christ and then repeats it. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not by works so that no one can boast. But it's for good works. Because in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, he said, For we are God's workmanship. In other words, God's good work towards us produces good works through us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared in advance that we should do. It's no different here the book of Titus. In fact, the, the term, the phrase good works is mentioned six times throughout the book of Titus. And there's only 46 verses here. So it's just a short book. Six times he emphasizes good works, good works, that which is virtuous, wholesome, right, and reflects the character of God. You see it there in verse 8 and also in verse 14. Look what he says. So this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, all believers, those who have trusted Christ, those who are following him, those who now live for him may be careful to, watch that, intentional, dedicated, devoted to good works, careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It's excellent and profitable. The people that we were describing up there in the first couple of verses, that Christ died for all people, to show perfect courtesy to all people, he says now that our good works will be profitable for people. He says it there in verse 14 as well. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. It's to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Where do good works come from? If they're the product of our salvation, how are we motivated to devote, devote ourselves and dedicate ourselves, to be careful, to devote ourselves to good works? Well, we can become those who uh, follow after kind of rules or regulations, legalists or Pharisees, if you will. We, we want to regulate these things and measure our, our, our progress by good works, or we can see them as exactly what they are in this passage, a response. A response to what, you might say? A response to God, his goodness, his kindness, his love. In other words, we should be influenced, first and foremost in verse 8, by God's love for us. We should be influenced by God's love for us. The Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that the love of Christ compels us. It's not our love for Christ that compels us, it's his love for us. The love of Christ towards us compels us. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and gave himself in our place. It's God's love for us that compels us to then live for him. And when we show love for others, it's ultimately a direct, a reflection of his love for us. So how do you love God or express God's love back to God? How do you reciprocate it? 
You might know that at Christmas or a special holiday, that as you receive a gift, you give a gift. Well, because God has given me this, I want to give in return. Well, how do you give back to God? Well, you can't buy God flowers. You can't buy him jewelry. You can't take him out to eat for a nice meal, right? No. But what you can do, you can express love through obedience. Here's what 1 John 5, 3 says. This is love for God, that we obey his commandments and they are not burdensome. In other words, we dedicate ourselves to good works, to obeying his word. Jesus said it this way. If you want to show your love for me, then keep my commandments. We should be influenced by God's love for us. And in doing so, we then should be intentional in our love for others. You see, when we're influenced by God's love for us, we then can be intentional to show God's love to other people. You say, well, they don't always deserve it. Neither did you. And neither did I. God's goodness towards us, none of us deserved it. But he says, devote yourself, be intentional, be deliberate to show good works to other people. And as you do so, it will be excellent and profitable for people. It will benefit them. They will see the tangible benefit so that you can then share with them the spiritual benefit. That we devote ourselves to good works and to help in cases of urgent need so that we would not be, watch this, unfruitful. You know, it's interesting he uses the word unfruitful there. In other words, there is an expectation that if God's love is within you, it would be producing fruit through you. And what would that fruit look like? And if you don't produce that fruit or that love for others, then in fact, your life would be unfruitful. It would be unfruitful. You know, God's love in our lives is meant to be poured not just into our hearts, but through our hearts. The Bible says in Romans 5, 5, that we've had the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And because God has loved us and we love God, how then should we love God? By loving others. Jesus connected these two in the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because God loves them. We're loving those who God loves. If we're going to love God, we should love those who God loves. He loves the neighbors around us. And say, well, how am I supposed to love my neighbor as myself? Nobody ever has a problem loving self. I mean, let's just be honest. I love me some me. All right. We all could say that, okay? Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Give yourself to what makes them happy, that meets their needs, that pleases them, that honors them, that serves them. We're called to reach the lost with good works. Lastly, this is important for us as a church. We're not just called to reach the lost with a godly lifestyle and genuine compassion and the gospel message and good works. We're called to reach the lost with a guarded unity. With a guarded unity. He says in verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies. And quite honestly, verse 9 and 10 don't make sense in this passage apart from the context and the missional point that God has for us. In other words, it just kind of seems out of place. But when you understand that he's, he's driving from verse 1 all the way down through the verses we've read of how you're going to reach the lost around you, you recognize that he all of a sudden interjects verse 9 and 10 as, as that which could be a, an impediment to reaching the lost around you. That which could become a hurdle for the gospel. That which could get in the way 
of the church and us as individuals doing what God has called us to do and to share in the good news. He says, so therefore you have to guard your unity. The testimony of the church has to be one of, of unified efforts and unified love for one another. How do we guard ourselves? Well, we must guard ourselves first, he says in verse 9, against divisive issues. Against divisive issues. He says, don't get all bound up in those things that don't matter. He says, but avoid foolish controversies. These things which are just wrestling over words. Arguing for the sake of arguing. Those things that don't have eternal consequence or significance. Don't avoid foolish controversies, he said, or genealogies and dissensions uh, and quarrels about the law. He says all these things are unprofitable and worthless. That word unprofitable there is in direct contradiction to what he said at the end of verse 8, which was profitable. Good works and service to the community is profitable. Arguments about those things which are worthless or don't make sense, foolish controversies are unprofitable. It gets in the way of the mission. We have to look at it and say, I'm going to avoid divisive issues. Paul warned Timothy to do this because he said, if you don't, in 2 Timothy 2, those things will become like gangrene, like gangrene, that which ultimately rots the, the members of the body, and it begins to spread among the body. And then the body is unable to do that which it's created to do. It's the same way in the church, that when foolish controversies and arguments and dissensions and disagreements begin to take over, it begins to create within us that which, the body itself, that which is unhealthy, and that which is unhealthy begins to spread and ultimately renders us as a body unhelpful. We have to avoid divisive issues. But he's also really specific. We must also avoid divisive individuals. That's a strong statement. But look what he says in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him, confronting in love him once. In other words, you, you kind of say, well, maybe he didn't know better. And then twice, now I'm seeing a pattern, right? But, but maybe he just can't get out of his own way. Afterwards, if it's continual, if it's ongoing, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that this person is, is warped, meaning his, his bent, her bent is, is in the wrong direction, ultimately sinful. Therefore, they stand self-condemned. In other words, their behavior, right, indicts themselves of what they're doing and what they're causing. We have to avoid them. Paul told the Thessalonians the same thing in 2 Thessalonians. He said, regard them as a brother, but avoid them. Listen, in our own lives, let's just say personally, within the church, but even within your own sphere of, of just friends, right? Those people which argue and wrestle over things, which are divisive, they upset you, come between you and God or you and other people, you need to avoid those people. That's just good counsel. But when it comes to the gospel, it's essential. It's essential. These things get in the way. So if we're going to reach the loss for Christ, how are we going to do it? These are five simple strategies. We're going to do it with a godly lifestyle, one that stands out in our culture. We're going to do it with genuine compassion that recognizes they need the good news of Christ. We're going to do it with the gospel message by meeting them where they are with the truth that God loves them. We're going to do it with good works as we serve our community, as we are kind to people and extend those things which God says are profitable in bringing them and in drawing them to faith in Christ. And we're going to do it with a guarded unity. Like Paul told the Philippians, that you would be striving together in one mind with unity, in unison, for the sake of the gospel. 
The gospel is what unites us. The mission is what unites us. Let's be about the mission. You know, we started uh, today by talking about the tragedy of a young lady named Kitty Genovese. You know, in that same neighborhood of Kew Gardens, just outside of Queens, in fact, in an apartment that overlooked where the original crime happened, 10 years later, actually on Christmas Day, another young girl was tragically murdered. Her name was Sandra Zoller. It's reported that once again, neighbors heard the screams, they heard the struggles, but they did nothing. They didn't learn from the past. And there were other victims that suffered as a result. Friend, listen, we can't diffuse responsibility expecting someone else to reach the loss around us. We can't be those bystanders that hear the screams of the loss in our community and expect someone else to be the one that carries the rescue message to them. We have the responsibility. You have the responsibility. I have the responsibility. We all share the responsibility to carry the good news of Jesus to the lost and dying world around us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of being not just saved, but part of the salvation mission. Fathers, we celebrate veterans today, those who serve our country. Father, we recognize that in a similar way, you've called us to serve as part of a, a mission, to live on mission, to engage the enemy around us, and to rescue those who have been taken hostage by him. Father, there's lost people in our families that we're going to come in contact with in the next couple of weeks during the holidays. There's lost people in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. There's lost people who we interact with on a regular basis. Father, who need you? Father, forgive us when we diffuse responsibility, when we look to someone else carry the good news to the lost and hurting around us. Father, I pray that those who are on our hearts, even now in this moment, Father, that we would feel a genuine responsibility and compassion for them. Father, maybe even those who are antagonistic against us, that we look at and we see them as, as opposition, opponents in our lives. Father, I pray that by your love for us, that you would give us a compassion to reach them. God, that we would do so with our lifestyle that reflects your kindness, with the good works, but God, also with the, the gospel message, the truth that Jesus loves them, that we would be bold while compassionate in our witness. Father, I pray that you would protect the testimony of Inglewood Baptist Church, that as we, as your people, devote ourselves and dedicate ourselves to the mission, we would do so in a unified way that doesn't do harm to the message or work against the mission. Father, we would unite together for the sake of the gospel to reach this community with the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray that each one of us would be careful to devote ourselves to these things this week, even today. Thank you again for your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your love that saves us. May we now be rescue agents 
for others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.